Hi guys, welcome back to the third episode of The Apple. We're your hosts, Esther and Amir. Hello. Before we get into the podcast, a viewer's discretion is advised. Today's conversation will be talking about IPV, intimate partner violence, just substance abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse. If any of this content is triggering, please be advised. We have two very special guests. Um, they're not students, but these are faculty professors. Um, so would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'm uh, Dr. Tara Mailer, and I'm an assistant prof in the School of Health Studies. I think it's funny uh, that you say we're not students because actually both of us were students here at one point, but not anymore. Uh, and I'm Professor Katie Shillington, and uh, I'm a faculty member here in the School of Health Studies as well. Welcome, guys. We are very excited to have you. The conversation today is a very important one. We wanted to give you guys a platform to speak about this because it doesn't seem the, it doesn't get the limelight it deserves. Yeah, and also um, because like this is for students, like they get to like get to know professors outside of like the classroom and what they do outside of just like hearing their lectures and things like that. Yeah, I love that. I love that you guys are doing this and finding different ways for us to connect. I know we were both very thrilled to be invited because uh, connecting with students outside the classroom is something that we're both very passionate about, but it can be really hard to do because I know that sometimes we can be a bit intimidating, although I don't really know why. But. <laughs> I think it's the doctor before the name. <laughs> but yeah, um, I just would like to start off with uh, both of you just giving a little bit of background, something about like you guys that students don't know, something like that. Ooh, okay. So, uh, background. Uh, fun fact about me, I have a flock of chickens at home. I actually live on a homestead about 45 minutes outside of uh, London. And so we keep bees and we have chickens that lay eggs and we raise pigs for a while, but not anymore because uh, pigs are stubborn and that's hard. But yeah, in the summer when I'm not working, you'll always find me in my garden. All right. Fun fact about me: I don't have chickens, so that's uh, <laughs> that's I guess a point down for me. Um, I like to run. I just completed my first marathon this oh, year, wow. which is very exciting. Uh, and I have a golden retriever named Ollie. She keeps me very busy. Um, yeah. So I guess those are those are two fun facts about me. And <laughs> although Katie doesn't have. Uh, chickens she is part of the hug a chicken program which is <laughs> runs uh, at my house yes Everybody... i have held a chicken i'm not very good at it no but my kids thought it was funny so yeah are they ferocious at all no chickens no. are not no. ferocious not our girls okay. i always girls see videos of like they, their head stays still but you can move their body so it's like yes that is true they're kind of and they when they run they're quite comical and because i have three kids all of the chickens have names and so mm. it's a it's a fun time. <laughs> Hug a chicken program. Yeah. Well, uh, just to move on a little bit, I just wanted to, for the students to know, like we talked about this last podcast as well. So what's, what are some of the courses that you're teaching? I've already explained it, but maybe give a better insight. Sure, I can go first. Um, right now I'm teaching Personal Determinants of Health, which I know you guys talked about, I think, on one of your other podcasts. Uh, which Students is were thrilled, by the way, <laughs> teaching. Thank you, that's so kind. Uh, so yeah, it's a first-year mandatory course in the School of Health Studies, and I've previously taught um, Palliative and End-of-Life Care, which is a fourth-year uh, course. Fantastic course. I teach uh, Childhood and Adolescence Health and Illness, which is the second year 2700 course. Um, and then I also teach, uh, right now I teach an Introduction to Rural Communities, which is a third year course offered in the fall. And then in the winter term, I teach a special topics course, which is a maternal child health, which currently isn't like a permanent course on the books, but we're hoping to get it switched over. So in your course uh, 2700, which I'm gonna link to your research in a second, there was one point where we uh, spoke about IPV. And of course, we're going to get into a lot of detail today. But when I heard IPV for the first time, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Like, of course, I'm not like trying to downplay it. I thought it just doesn't happen that much anymore. And one of the reasons I really wanted to get both of you guys on is, I hope, this podcast might teach people in the future to not, like, to decrease IPV. If they know what the problems are, maybe they can, like, in their own mind, internalize and, like, oh, I shouldn't do this or that. So just uh, can we uh, 
give a little bit of explanation what IPV is? Yeah, so IPV stands for Intimate Partner Violence, and it's a form of gender-based violence. And we tend to think, when we think about violence in the context of relationships, we tend to think of it as a problem that doesn't really happen. And that's partly because it makes us feel more comfortable, right? If we can think of it as another person's problem or a problem that really just exists somewhere else in the world, then we feel better about ourselves. But we actually know that this is not true. Here in Canada, the prevalence rate for intimate partner violence is actually around 40%, which is really, really high, which means it, um, women particularly have a 40% chance or 40% of women will experience intimate partner violence at some point in their lives, whether that's when they're younger, like dating violence, or when they're maybe in more long-term relationships or whether it is when they're older. And so it is a really significant problem and we really need to care about it, not only because it's a significant health problem in that it impacts so many people, but there are also a lot of long-term health consequences of violence. And the research has really established this quite well we see this in terms of like physical some of the things that you would think of if somebody was maybe in a violent relationship like bruises or broken bones but we also see consequences longer term in things like mental health where people have depression or post-traumatic stress injury and then those consequences um, as I'm sure as health studies students you would know when you've got those health consequences that start to layer on one on top of another they're going to impact all avenues and aspects of your life one of the stats that really scared me was about 80% of people who experience IPV have been sexually assaulted as a child. That, that's, a, that's a very, very scary stat. It is a very scary stat. And it, it's one of those things that when sometimes when relationships exist, we don't always understand why. But when we know that that relationship is so strong, it gives us things to look for. It gives us points in, in care and points in that broader healthcare system where we can think about maybe we ought to be intervening because it happens so often. I think something that's really important to highlight is that um, intimate partner violence doesn't like always like manifest as something that's physical like it's not like bones and bruises and stuff like that but it can also be like sexual violence emotional abuse and other things like that that can be um affected in the relationship yeah it can take many different forms like you mentioned physical abuse is probably one that is most common or what comes to mind when you think about ipv but as you mentioned it can take uh, it can be emotional. In many cases, it's financial. Uh, so a lot of women that we, we've talked to and that we research um, don't have access to their finances or there's some type of course of control over them where they can't access their, their finances as well. So it can certainly take uh, lots of different forms. A uh, question I have, is it an onset or is it a progressive thing? Like, does it get worse and worse as it goes on? Like, do their bank accounts start getting taken from them? They can't go here. They can't hang out with her friends and stuff. Is that how it usually goes? Yeah, that's a really hard question. So we can think about it in terms of, like, cycles of abuse that we know happens. So the cycle is hard, and it can be hard to understand because it doesn't, it's not a definite pattern in that it, not all women or men are going to experience the same way. So it doesn't always necessarily this progression from nothing to something, or it, it doesn't always always 100% get worse over time sometimes things change and so it's really hard we can make generalizations and the generalization is that typically there's a time where nothing happens and by and large the relationship would look the same as any other person's relationship right where you're sort of getting along and everything's going well and then there's usually a moment or some events where tension starts to build when we've talked to women they talk about you know I can sense it coming on I can feel it happening and then there's typically an event so that explodes actual event where it happens and then there's a cooling off period or a period where there's lots of like remorse I'm sorry I love you this will never happen again maybe there's gifts those types of things love bombing yeah exactly yeah. and so you see this cycle but it's not it, it's not the same for everyone it's not like we can say this is exactly what happens and this is exactly what will happen but that's probably a pretty good characterization and a lot of women do report that it does it can get worse over time but again hard because we don't want to create too many generalizations is the research does there a lack of research at all 
there's actually a lot of really amazing research happening in this area. There's a lot of dedicated researchers here at Western. We've got two sort of leading experts, Dr. Ford Gilbo um, in the School of Nursing and Dr. Wathen in the School of Nursing. She used to be in FEMS, who are big Canadian researchers for domestic violence or intimate partner violence, gender-based violence. We also have, um, I'm part of a team here um, in Canada that's doing research across the, across the country. So we've got partners in BC as well as partners partners out east and there's a national conference and community that uh, we're a part of NNVAWI that's working to do more research in this area and work collaboratively so I wouldn't say there's a lack of research I think we need more research uh, and especially I think in light of COVID it's really come to the surface. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're talking a lot about um, the research that you do. And before we started this podcast, we got to um, like look at the different researches that you've done. And um, we've noticed that a lot of your research surrounds like issues in women's health and well-being. So why do you think that promoting women's health is so important within like healthcare? And what really keeps you motivated in like these research projects? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I'll talk about what keeps me motivated, and then Katie, if you want to jump in. So the reason I care about women's health is because uh, we all came from a woman, which means that it, it matters to all of us whether whether you wanted to or not. But that's the reality. Um, and we've spent so long studying men's health, and I think that that's so important. But we uh, historically we have overlooked women's health, and so women's health to me is something that's really important. Just like when we think about health in you know minority populations or equity deserving groups, we need to study it in all those different areas in order to make sure that we're using those sort of best possible of it. What do you find that's important within oh. women's health? To echo some of the points that um, Tara said, uh, it's just, it's really important in, in general and I like knowing that the research that we do makes a difference and, and contributes to something bigger than, than ourselves and you know when we get to to talk to women who've experienced violence it's it makes it like really real and and we're seeing you know their strength their resilience um how they're coping things like that um so i think that's kind of what keeps me going keeps me motivated and yeah in your research we're going to get into the coping strategies in a second is there any is there any other research that would help men to understand how to prevent it or like to like know like Personally, I like to think no one is all bad. I feel like, um, of course, like it's very wrong for men to do that. But I feel like some men are also uneducated. Maybe they feel like they saw it outside and that's how they think that's a way of dealing with the issue. Is there any research to teach men how to prevent IPV? Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of research that's going in, particularly with younger children as well as in adolescents, about healthy relationships. So there was a health promotion campaign a while back. It was the four R's of healthy relationships, you know, respect. And uh, there were three other R's. I should probably uh, know those. I think I taught those at one point. But it, for a lot of us, the schemes that we have, the way that what we would see as acceptable in a relationship has a lot to do with what we saw when we were growing up, what we saw when we were little. And so it's about making sure that people understand what healthy relationships are and what they look like. And what where is that line? What is abuse? And how do we make sure that people sort of understand that? Because I think that's, that's part of it. The other part of it sometimes has to do with tempers and control and controlling behaviors. And that's more where the IPV comes in. It's not necessarily just violence as a means of like a communication tool, like a really poor communication tool, etc. But in intimate partner violence, the point of the violence is to control someone's behavior. And that's that's where that line is. And that's where we need to really think carefully about um, how do we support women to become safe um, or to be safe in those relationships. And oftentimes they know exactly what they need. We just need to ha um, have those resources widely available to them. And then sometimes it's about helping them to identify the relationships that they're in. In terms of the research with men and like rehabilitation, there's, there's some really good work that's being done out of a few different areas there's some work that's being done uh, around Sarnia area and then up north it's not something that I'm super familiar with my research really tends to focus on the women yeah I, I don't have too much more, <laughs> more to add to that I can't really speak to to men's um, uh, perspective as well because yeah we research more women why is one of the biggest things that you found in your research self-blaming from the woman when she is uh, being abused 
Yeah. So when you think about um, abuse, there's an erosion of self-esteem, right? If you're told every day lies about yourself, that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, what happens is that becomes internalized, right? It's It, it just becomes your new belief system. When you think about this erosion of self-esteem over the periods of, period of months or years, then there becomes blame around that, right? If I'm not good enough and that's what everyone's telling me or that's what my significant other is telling me, that becomes internalized which then they women do tend to start blaming themselves for the things that they're experiencing you know if if I could have just done something slightly differently if I could have just done something slightly better then this wouldn't have happened when in actual reality she doesn't have any control over it and nobody deserves to be abused regardless of whether you know the dinner table is set on time or not is uh, self-blaming linked to a lack of police filings is that at all Oh, that's a good question. I don't think so. I would wager not again. So I think when we think about whether or not women disclose abuse to police, you have to think about what the intention is, um, as well as what the need is. So when your people are reaching out to police, what is it that they want police to do? We also know that um, historically and currently policing services are not always well equipped to support women, um, right? They're supposed to be a frontline emergency service. And while there's these moments of emergency, Emergency, their ability to step in and support is not that's not the design or the function um, necessarily of the police service I think women tend to under report or not report to police one because they don't want police services or two because they're better they feel better equipped to handle it themselves or three they could be concerned about the response that they're going to get so if you're reaching out for help and you don't get help then you're less likely to reach out for help or if you know a friend who's reached out for help and they didn't get the help that they needed but rather you know got undermined or discriminated against then you're not going to reach out to because you would assume it would be the same experience the other piece of uh, reporting is when you report something you're admitting that it's happened a lot of women we've talked to have felt like they were failed at their relationship or that they were a failure because of this and so there's that piece I think it's really nuanced and it's sort of all wraps and winds together but I don't know that I necessarily see a connection between those two I think the under reporting um, is just sort of nuanced by a bunch of other issues. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like listening to a different podcast a couple of days ago that was talking about um, domestic violence reportings and police. And they were saying how um, recently the percentage of women who are police has gone up. And along with that, the rate of like incoming calls and like, um, for like domestic abuse has also been going up and they say that it they could like guess that the i guess the correlation was because more women in the police force um allows for like other women to reach out and feel more accepted and that or also because they feel like sometimes men might undermine their problems as well which is why they're like underreported absolutely and a lot of police forces now are have have specialized units and some of them have specialized training and some of them are and hopefully you know in the perfect world those would be working really closely with shelters and community right so i think we're starting to see a, a shift but like all system shifts it takes time where do you think the trajectory of ipv is going do you think in the future it'll be lower higher stagnant what do you guys hope it's a big question (laughs) i mean i think we all hope that it it would be lower and hopefully with you know more research and more education um that prevalence would be lower it's a a big question because it's such a systemic question um you know not everyone has access to the same education to the same resources uh in the work that we do there's the difference between urban communities and rural communities and just even even that there's a lot of differences so there's a lot of things i think to take into account uh so i don't know that i can blanket statement whether uh, like the direction but maybe tara can can weigh in yeah (laughs) no i think that's a great answer katie i also think we know during covid it got worse yeah it it, it got worse And that's the current trajectory. And I mean, we well, I think we all like to imagine that COVID is over, but COVID is very much not over. Um, and so we've seen this spike and I think it'll take a while for us to determine whether we're going to stay at that level, whether we're going to see a reduction, like what's going on. Mm-hmm. Speaking of like COVID, um, we can jump into 
the first research paper that we're going to talk about. It's called The Impacts of COVID-19 on the Coping Mechanisms of Canadian Women Experiencing Intimate Partner Violence. Do you guys want to give like a brief overview of like what entailed in that study and what you found? Looks like that. Sure, yeah. Um, so we conducted, it was a mixed method study, so uh, it included both qualitative and quantitative components. Um, and we were interested in looking at the coping strategies of women who, who were experiencing violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think there were 95 women, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, uh, who participated uh, in the quantitative component, so a survey component where we um, had measured uh, IPV uh, as well as coping through two different scales. And then um, we had a qualitative component as well where we interviewed 29, 25, 27, 29 women. <laughs> Hard to keep all the studies straight. Um, There's uh, 19 on 19. Zoom. All right, 19. There we go. <laughs> we do our research over here. <laughs> um, yeah, and so we had asked them uh, different questions with regards to what coping looked like for them during the pandemic and how the pandemic had impacted their relationships and what changes and, and whatnot had impacted their relationships. And we found a lot of different things. I don't know that it was really surprising. I think we had we had anticipated, unfortunately, that there would be a rise in, uh, in IPV during COVID. Uh, and as a result, it did impact uh, women mostly negatively. Just a side note question. How difficult was it to conduct a study as a woman seeing these women go through that? Well, that's a, yeah, I, I think when you're passionate about what you're doing, that helps. And so when you think about the statistics that um, like between 33 and 40% of women, depending on which stats you're following, have experienced IPV, you have to realize that in the number of women, if I think about the number of women that I know, so like right now there are four women sitting at this table, stats would indicate that at least one of us at some point in our life, like that's, that's so eye-opening and shocking and I think that's what drives the research and so while I think it's hard there's also in all the interactions that we have with women most of them want to share their stories they want to help other women they want to help other women to not be in the same situations or find better ways for systems to support women to get out of situations and so that sort of positive that light is what drives the research that we're doing and also just the the gratitude that we have for women who are willing to share their stories with us and and all of our research is really grounded in participatory action or integrated models where we are trying to change the systems and so i think that that helps as well knowing that i'm not just studying this because i'm interested in it but rather we want to see real change does it ever feel like you're going against the tide like pushing a boulder off a rock or, or a cliff does it ever feel like that um I would say in the early days, and I was an early researcher maybe, but I've surrounded myself by just amazing researchers and amazing women who, it's mostly women who are doing work in this area. And so any time where it starts to feel hard or challenging, it's really great to be able to reach out and be like, hey, let's grab a coffee. Um, or, you know, reading the interviews and realizing the impact that we're having on women's lives and just how important it is to continue to share their message and their voice. I think that always helps. Yeah. Um listening to, and sorry reading about your research and I thought it was really great how especially like the zoom component where they got to talk to other people about their experiences that was like a really great outlet for them as well like they've probably been like hold, a lot of them have been holding it in and being in like um these relationships so and not having other people to talk about it with especially during COVID um so this was really great I guess yeah, we were able to conduct the interviews over Zoom or over the telephone. So um, for many women, because of COVID, there was, uh, as you know, a lot of shutdowns. They, they weren't able to access the same resources that they were able to. So it's definitely possible that, you know, in talking to us, um, they were able to uh, perhaps say some of the things for the first time or acknowledge some things for the first time um, during, during COVID, for sure. This might be a little bit of a difficult question to answer. For women or like the people listening to this podcast, hopefully no one ever experiences IPV. But if they do, any coping strategies or any like just one-liner um, advice do you have for them? Mm. 
Yeah, I would say we have some amazing resources. The ANOVA uh, here in London is absolutely phenomenal. And that just because you call or reach out doesn't mean you have to actually go there or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just the ability to get help and they would be best positioned to help you. Um, They support women, all of this community and have successfully for a very long period of time. And I can personally vouch for them. They are fabulous humans. Um, And so my advice would be, reach out and get help it's like it's like any crisis or like anything anyone's facing right facing it alone is really hard as soon as you start facing it with other people who are better positioned to help you things get easier right things always get easier in a group i think um sorry esther uh i think saying alone was a very key point because of course i don't experience this but just having just putting my mind in their shoes of uh uh walking a mile in their shoes. I could just imagine the isolation of not having your own finances, the physical, uh, the factors, the emotional factors, and just not having a group. Because one of your, and part of your research, you did say, even if they have a social coping mechanisms, they don't feel as connected. So like, I, I could just imagine like the figurative stranglehold you could feel. It's very, very scary. Yeah, um, you mentioned like fi- financial coping. And um, in the research, it said that financial coping was like one of the key um, like strategies of coping that was really important to the women. And that was like really eye-opening because I didn't expect that to be one. I didn't know what it meant, but it's basically like having autonomy over your own money. So like not being financially dependent on other people or like on your abuser. And that really made a big difference. And I guess that was really eye-opening for me because I didn't realize how much of an impact that really does have having to like be able to like leave a situation is also like um, really heavily dependent on money, I guess. So, yeah, I think the financial piece is really big, and it's definitely something that we've seen seen in in our other work as well. Um, and I I know you know it's it's maybe not something that comes to mind when you think of abuse or you think of IPV. And in talking to women, you know, we we heard that they'll be at the grocery checkout line and they'll notice that there's not any money in their account, like their their partner hadn't transferred their weekly allowance to buy groceries, things like that that we don't really, you know, maybe think about. And so hearing them talk about, you know, the 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 strength that they have and the joy that they have in having their own finances and having their own autonomy. A lot of the women, you know, are building their own businesses or, or um, you know, just doing things that, you know, um, help to build their resilience, help them to cope, uh, I think is really amazing. Yeah. Why, do, why is there such a high dependence on substance abuse in rural communities as a coping mechanism by rural women? Yeah, so I would I classify it as substance use, not mm-hmm. substance Sorry, abuse. Yeah, yeah no, because I, yeah. I think with abuse we cast our own judgments, and yeah. substance use is like until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes. I'm not really in a position to judge, um, and I think part of it is we see it in urban communities as well, but. Um, in terms of rural communities, there's, there can be less resources, right? So when you think about a rural community, it might only have, you know, one primary health care provider or it might not even have a shelter. Maybe the closest shelter is three communities over. Um, and that lack of resources or the lack of connection or even more social isolation might mean that one of the only coping strategies that this woman has or that she has autonomy over might be the use of substance. Um, and I think it's important that we stay out of a place of judgment on that because, again, until you... Until you've walked what she's walked and faced what she's faced, any coping that uh, keeps her uh, in a good space or keeps her going, I always think is good coping. Yeah, and like being able to read in the paper, you guys put in like quotations of like direct things that they've said. And I think that um, like gives the readers like a better experience of what they're actually feeling in the moment rather than just like reading somebody's like um, paraphrasing of what they were trying to get across. Moving on to COVID, I mean, it's always going to be a conversation starter. How did that impact IPV? Just like a beginning, like, did it make it, of course, I would say more spike, right? You guys are isolated into a home. Yeah. It did, absolutely. We saw an increase in incidence and prevalence as well as severity of IPV oh, wow. during severity. COVID. 
because when you think about it, COVID was this really is this really stressful situation, particularly when we did this research, which was early days COVID, um, and so we were still doing those lockdowns, and there was so much uncertainty, right? If you think back to your you know 2020 self when you know everything shut down and nobody knew what was going on those days, you know when we were Lysoling groceries wearing gloves because we just didn't know, and so in that time that creates a huge amount of stress on a on a relationship, not to mention all the unemployment that went along with that and we know financial stress is a significant sort of indicator or moderator of violence the more stress that is felt typically the more violence that we see and so we saw this explosion um, or higher levels of violence and in talking with women and shelters and directors they talked about seeing it at rates that they've never seen and seeing it at severity and seeing severities that they that they hadn't seen in a canadian context it spoke about hotels as an alternative housing we all know the hotel laws that happened, and I could just imagine how chaotic it could be. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so in work that I did with uh, Dr. Wathen's team, uh, we talked to shelters and we talked to women and frontline service providers to just try to understand the way that services were changing and responding to COVID. And one of the mandates was the physical distancing and specifically around congregate living. And so one of the rules was is that people couldn't share bathrooms anymore. Well, in shelters, it's usually a, bedroom, a couple bedrooms and they share a bathroom. And so that effectively cut shelter occupancy rates by significant percentage. I think some of the research from that team was like 60 to 70 percent space loss. And so one of the alternates that was put forward was hotels, right? Hotels. And so they would pay for hotels and women to go to hotels. And while that provides a physical safe place in that the woman is not home, what we found in speaking with women as well as service providers is that it's there was a real tension, right? There were really things that were really good about it. Some of the women really liked the autonomy of living in the hotel. They didn't have to conform to shelter rules. Um, they could really come and go a little bit more as they pleased, whereas in those early stages of lockdown and shelters, it was a bit more tight. Um, but they also talked about maybe not always feeling safe at shelters, right? So at, at sh or at hotels rather. So a shelter has a, a locked door, it's secure access. There's somebody who watches who's in and out at a shelter there's none or sorry at a hotel there's none and and when you think about this in rural communities sometimes the the rural hotel is actually a rural motel and that motel might not be in the best part of town and so you've got women who are trying to you know stay at a hotel or a motel with children to be in a safe uh, safe space and there's you know drug deals happening right outside the door they don't feel safe to leave the place at night um but it was a real it's hard to say sort of the value or not value. I mean, in, in some ways, hotels and motels were useful in that women weren't turned away from shelter, which would have been really problematic. Um, there was some safety concerns. There was concerns around whether they got sufficient programming and support or whether they were sort of just left out there. The bottom line is in those early days of COVID, it was really presented as the only option. So it wasn't really an option. It was kind of like, we need to make the best of this. Um, and I think that what research will continue to sort of nuance over the in the future is was was that good enough or do we need a different plan for future pandemics? Mm -hmm. And um, you briefly mentioned about like the different options that they have. It's like with COVID and the restrictions that they have, you can either like continue staying in a violent home um, with your abuser or you could go and find the shelter, which there's limited occupancy, of course, or use a hotel. So that really doesn't leave many options. Um, or sorry, other than that, face homelessness, which is like even more severe, so yeah. As we just talked about financial um, abuse, we know, you never talked about um, the cost of hotels. Was that also another wrench in the system? Yeah, because I'm um, reading of, uh, the article, um, like where is the, like the cost of hotels obviously are really high, especially like renting out multiple rooms for multiple nights at a time. Um, is there like any funding that was like gave to like support this? Yeah, there was funding. I don't know exactly how that worked. I, I don't know that I ever asked that question, but I know that it was covered. So women didn't have to cover it. And I think shelters pr uh, probably got additional money or support to cover that. Most of the time they had sort of blocks of rooms that were set aside. Because the other thing you need to remember is people weren't staying in hotels and motels during COVID. Like there was no travel. There was no... Um, you know, conferences, et cetera. So there was more vacancy in hotels. So they were more willing to house women for the most part. Was there ever like a, like a situation where like 
they can't accept any more people and there aren't any hotel like yeah. spaces that they would have to turn down women that's a really good question so uh we did when we talked with directors um we talked about the triaging right so what do they do if it's a small rural community and there's only so many spaces available and there's only so many spaces in the shelter and so they would triage the most sort of high-risk cases would come into shelter because there's more of those like safety measures and mechanisms where some of the quote-unquote lower risk were sent out into community i didn't hear in talking with shelters any instances where people were just completely turned away um i think the one really amazing thing about women's shelters is they are very industrious uh they are very passionate about what they do and they seem to always find a way to make it work and fortunately they find a way to make it work with less and less resources which means service is great for women. The stress level on providers is really high, unfortunately. Um, so I didn't hear of any of those instances. I'd be interested to know if it actually happened. Um, I suspect it, it probably did somewhere. Um, just when we make these policy level decisions, it's sometimes those unintended consequences that we just don't think about. I like how you bring up industrious. My sister works at a women's shelter, the women that have dementia. And she tells me all the time, like, it might, we might not have a lot of uh, resources, but we get it done. Of course, it's a very sad. Um, she comes home sometimes, like, crying, of course. But she's like, I love going, just helping out. We're very industrious. She says that all the time. Like, we get it done no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, most of these organizations do because they're passionate. They're passionate people who work there. In a perfect world, just your opinion what would you want, like, what mechanisms you want in place? How do you, how would you like this uh, issue to be fixed? Yeah, uh, what would I like? Uh, I would like, I think the best way to fix this is through prevention, uh, through not having women in violent relationships and making sure that everybody understands healthy relationships. Um, I think in terms of yeah, I think that would be the best outcome, to be to be honest. I think there's so much work that we need to do um, in helping to support and bring that to reality. But that would be prevention. Prevention, and I think it's a tune that we all sing across these healthcare classes or these health studies classes, right? Prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if we prevent it, it's just easier in the long run. Yeah, and I think that's something we've also, like, heard from women as well when we ask them, you know, um, what what they hope for the future what they um, a lot of women say education and you know educating making people aware um, so that you know other women don't face similar experiences as them so back to the first study around coping strategies one of the questions that I had was um, basically a lot of um, the work was done around coping and resilience and well-being and um, as health science students, like we take a whole course on resilience and well-being, and so, um, what's something that you, um, what while conducting the study, is there anything that you noticed or learned about resilience within the women who had to regularly practice it? I mean, I think we found that women are very resilient um, by nature, and you know, a lot of them talked about inner strength and uh, the strength that they relied on on themselves, as well as. Um, the strength that they, for those of them that are mothers, the strength that they get from their children as well. Um, and I know you, uh, Tara has some things on the resilience in this endemic as well uh, that, that we noted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really great to hear because um, uh, it's just so hard and it's frustrating reading these articles because like you're like learning about other women's and their experiences and you know, you're reading and you're thinking, I'm so grateful that uh, this doesn't happen to me at least and so mm-hmm. yeah but that's why having these important conversations are mm-hmm. so important and i know we were so grateful to be invited to be able to use this platform because i think the more we talk about some of those things especially those hard things um the better it will be right it's it's when we don't talk about it or when we cover it up or when we you know don't shed light on it that things get perpetuated so i think platforms like this and opportunities like this we're just so grateful for and they're so important we're very happy to have you guys on on average can you shed light on how like severe it is 
like is that anything you can talk about it de- is- yeah it just depends on the relationship and i think we you know i think most severe would obviously be like femicide when the woman's been killed um but severity is is one of those things we've got metrics and we've sort of create hierarchies and we can watch or count or frequencies etc but the health consequences are, are really by and large the same right it, and so severity while it's important it doesn't always tell the whole story what's like your inspiration behind your research like how do you come up with like i want to study hotels and intimate partner violence is there like some kind of like moment where you're like i'm sparked with an idea and then i want to like figure this out with like the process i guess yeah that's a great question so all of our research is typically born out of the previous study to be honest so we always ask women you know whatever is our research question. And one of the questions that we typically follow up with is, you know, is there anything else you'd like us to know or anything else that's important or future directions or things that you think we should change? And then when we compile those, we typically go, oh my goodness, that's the next research question. And so it's really driven by women. We use a uh, type of research or type of qualitative research that's interpretive description, which means the design is changing practice. And so we use exactly what women say and we feed that back in. Or when women say something and we go, huh, we don't really understand that we don't really see that in the literature then we would create that so all of research is really driven by participants and driven by what sort of what are the gaps that we need to fill to make it better what do you think the best form of getting this information out like for primary research the whole not the whole population can read it is a more difficult um english level of writing also uh it does get lost in translation when it goes to secondary. What do you think is the best? Do you think it's through video format, podcasting? I mean, of course, all of it together is the best, but if you had to choose one, what would be like the big push of getting it out to the masses? Oh, that's a hard question. I, I think it depends on what the purpose of the message is. So when we have a research study with a bunch of findings, we think about who needs to know this and at what point, and then we tailor the message and we tailor the medium. So if I'm giving a presentation, say to a board of directors, that presentation is going to look very different than if I'm doing a podcast or if I'm doing an event with stakeholders at like a women's shelter, that's going to look very different than if I'm talking to women who've experienced it. And so I think in terms of knowledge mobilization the best the best plan is to figure out who needs to know it and why why is it important to them what's our target audience and then matching those things together that's usually where we find the most success yeah i would have to echo um on those points there i know we've given different presentations and uh it looks different based on who we're we're talking to whether it's you know researchers or an academic community versus women in shelter versus whoever it might be students etc uh so yeah mapping it would probably be the best strategy do you think one of the most effective ways is teaching young adults university students high school uh, both men and women Uh, Yeah, I'm obviously a firm believer in education or I wouldn't be a professor. Uh, But yeah, I think the more we can educate people, the better. I think it's in terms of intervention, it's the easy or it's not necessarily the easiest, but it is the most effective and cost effective. And not to mention that I think, um, like you said, you know, people are innately good and people innately want to do better. And so I think helping everybody to do better is helping everybody to know more and know what to look for signs that you might see in your relationship or others people's relationship and helping people to know what to do in those instances Mm -hmm. um what made you guys want to like pursue a career in academia um katie i know that you're doing your phd right now yeah Yeah. and before you were also like a health science student so what was kind of the transition where you wanted to like go on to a phd rather than like other well she met me (laughs) yeah Yeah, i did have the pleasure of taking courses with tara (laughs) What did uh, you take? Um, I took, you used to teach a lot of aging courses. I so do. I, oh, I that's took, terrifying. That's memory lane. Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, I took some aging courses. <laughs> um, yeah, I did my, my undergrad, master's, and now PhD uh, at Western, so they just can't get rid of me. <laughs> uh, we bleed purple. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, and I think in terms, to answer your question, in terms of getting involved in research, I think I, I met the right people, and um, I worked on, on Tara's team and on uh, Jen's team as well. And so I was exposed to research in my undergrad and, you know, thought I would do my master's. And, you know, here we are. I haven't left. So. <laughs> do you ever get, like, burnt out or, like, you know? 
Um, I think everybody, you know, can get burnt out in whatever profession or whatever they're doing is if, if they don't, you know, have a, have a good, healthy balance of, of different things. I mean, I try to, to, you know, all the things we learn in health side, you know, get exercise, you know, do what you need to do for, for mental and physical health and hopefully avoid burnout. <laughs> I think also burnout is, I see burnout in lots of areas of my like professional life where I don't usually see it is in the, like the research side. So in talking to women, in reading transcripts and doing focus groups and interviews and, and even cleaning data, which can be a bit mundane. Um, there's a lot of passion there and I know, I know the importance of it. And so I find that really uh, like rejuvenating. Like I feel quite excited to keep going. And so I think even though it's a really hard topic and it's a heavy topic and it can feel a bit overwhelming at times, I think holding on to that light is usually what most researchers in this area, what drives us. Quick fire question, research or teaching? Oh, <laughs> I feel like if I say research, that's awkward because you're all in my class right now. No, uh, can I say, say Say the truth. Oh, I would. I, you know what? At this point, because it's November and exams are looming, and that's stressful even for me. I'll say research. But if you catch me in September, I say teaching. It probably depends on the day, to be honest. <laughs> I'm probably the same. I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. You ever get like don't want to talk to students, just be in your own bubble of research? Um, I think if I get super focused on a project, I could get a little bit. I, I mean, but that's just me. I feel like sometimes I don't know who I am or where I'm going. Um, I think that's true of most academics at some point. But I genuinely love students. I like I like watching you guys learn. I like watching the way that you guys think. And I like thinking about ways that I can hopefully change the way that you're thinking about things. Um, and for me, watching those aha moments or those moments where stu- like a student really gets it, that is like, that's the best. That is the absolute best. Yeah. Um, in your childhood and adolescence class, I was like a couple of like, weeks ago i remember like class had just finished and i was overhearing these two girls behind me she's like you know i just got to go and call my mom and say thank you <laughs> like, wow. yeah. after learning what it takes to raise a kid i called my mom like you did a great job yay i've accomplished all i need to then <laughs> so what's your favorite course you teach 2700 3010 oh, favorite course my favorite course i would say oh man how what are the what's the viewership like on this is it like <laughs> mostly first we're at an uptick it keeps getting more and more oh no uh, so i cheat i like 2700 because like the energy in that room 400 people you guys seem to genuinely care which is a really cool energy i also like 3010 though because it's 3010 is my favorite and it's a small group and we get to have super like just great discussion what's, what's the name of that course introduction to rural oh, okay, communities yeah. and it's fabulous tell everybody <laughs> amazing um, remember my remember my uh, presentation yes yes yeah it's, best presentation ever see <laughs> it's so they're so great but that we get to have better conversations in the in uh third and fourth year classes and i really like that but i i i like it all yeah i mean i i don't teach nearly as many classes <laughs> Tara, but uh, I mean, I'm teaching 1001 the students. There's a lot of them, but they're they're a good group, and so uh, you know, it's it's fun to be able to introduce students to um, new topics. And for many of them, it's you know their first first year in university, their first maybe even their first course when they when they take it. So um, it's a it's a neat position to be in, and I really enjoy it. Would you rather teach first years or fourth years? Actually. I've only taught first years like once before. So I'd have to say fourth years just because I don't usually teach first years. What would you like? First years or fourth years? Probably first years right now. <laughs> How many um, like classes do you guys usually have to teach in like a semester? So it depends. A normal workload for a faculty member is three courses, uh, three courses a year, not a, not a, yeah. So we usually do like a two one split because we also have teaching that's be considered graduate students, carrying graduate students or working with graduate students. But there are some faculty members who teach seven a year because they're more of a teaching intensive faculty uh, member. And so it really, it, it, it just depends on what sort of your designation is. What did you learn from teaching? Should I learn from teaching? Um, that's a great question. I learned that teaching is a lot easier if students 
are bought in or engaged and that that's my job as a teacher that's my job is to get I need to try with a hook to catch you to get you to want to care and whether that's using anecdotes or I've done games in smaller classes or I've had dramas and all sorts of crazy things, anything to get you in. Because once you're in, the teaching is easy and the learning is easy. If I can, I, but I find the hook is important. Yeah, you're taking all the good answers. That's why, that's why I talk first. <laughs> yeah, <in class. laughs> I know. I think, you know, engagement is such a, a key piece. And uh, I'm definitely earlier on in my career than, than, than Tara. So um, what I've learned thus far... Oh, that's a tough question. I know. <laughs> good, hard question. Yeah, it is a really good question. Professional here. We're I very know. professional. You guys have got it. I mean, I think uh, what I've learned is like a lot of students, um, they want to do well. They want to learn and they're here to, to learn. And, and um, it's cool to play a, just even a small piece in that. So knowing that, you know, we're shaping shaping people's minds and, and their knowledge in different areas is a really cool feeling. One other thing um, that I've found, because I've taken both of you guys' courses, one of the, you guys have a very similar teaching method, is you bring energy into the room. Uh, now, I've had uh, the class with Dr. Shillington through online, and that is challenging to even get some energy. And I was engaged, I was looking forward to every class. Please, guys, email the dean for 4710. But even for your childhood course and your 3010 course, you guys bring an energy where it makes it easy to get engaged. The content, of course, is uh, interesting. Even if it was a mundane content, you guys don't come on the mic, so hi guys, you know, it's like mundane. I feel like when a prof comes in with energy and actually is passionate and wants to teach, instead of just like, oh, I have to do this for research, you know, like those type of thing. When they actually want to mold the student's mind, it really uh, translates to the student being engaged, wanting to listen, wanting to learn. Like I still have uh, lessons from 3010 that I remember to this day. Most kids like just forget after the semester. Yeah, thank you, that's lovely. Yeah, it's always like the like small examples that you guys bring into classes. That's what I've noticed in like all my previous classes when they give maybe personal examples of things that they've done. And I always end up thinking back to them. It's really interesting. Yeah, your personal examples were the ones I always like remember. If I'm like thinking about like a slide or something, oh, what did she say here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it helps it to come alive. And it makes it more entertaining for us, too, I think. For sure. <laughs> what tips would you guys give to help students, um, for all the listeners, um, yeah. to help succeed in your classes? I think, you know, taking care of yourself is, like, the first thing that, I, you know, I always tell, t- tell students. Um, so making sure that you, you know, take breaks in your studies and whatnot um, in order to do well. I mean, I'm a big fan of concept maps, and I think Tara got me on that when I was in undergrad. So uh, in terms of study methods, that's definitely one that, that I use in order to bring a lot of concepts together. Uh, so I would say in order to, you know, or one of the ways to do well maybe in my courses would be to be able to connect the concepts and be able to apply the material is really helpful. Yeah, I think that's a great – I am a big fan of – if you can see the bigger picture, it makes the – it makes the small pieces easier. If you see where the whole thing is going and you have a general understanding of that, usually the small pieces you can sort of figure out. Um, I would also say uh, when you come to class, be prepared to learn. And if you're not, then don't come. And I'm not saying that from a place of judgment. I'm saying that from a place of we all have days where we're not in a place. And so don't bring yourself there. Don't bring yourself to class because it's not going to go well. You're not going to feel good and you're going to end up more stressed out. And I think we're doing a better job. The university is doing a better job. I think just generally the world is doing a better job at realizing that we all have off days and we all need downtime and mental health is so important and taking those breaks is so important. And so those are my biggest because I feel like once you get it in your head that you don't understand something, it's really hard to get rid of that or shake that feeling i have one more question you're free not to answer has being a mother helped you better be a teacher or has teacher helped you be a better mother oh um i think it probably works both ways i think being a mom teaching 2700 uh makes it a bit easier because i can use examples with my kids especially for some of the um, more abstract uh, concepts and i think that makes me a better teacher because i think it's easier for students to relate um, I think it probably also being a teacher makes me a better mom. I like to think maybe I have a little bit more patience, although I don't know, a two-year-old with a temper tantrum, does anybody have any patience? Um, so I think it probably worked a little bit both ways. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was really nice having you guys on, and I'm sure the listeners will 
really appreciate getting to hear more about the professors and the faculty. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's been great. This <laughs> has been fabulous, and I can't wait to actually listen to this podcast mm-hmm. and all of them and see where you guys are going to take this because you guys are doing such an amazing job. Thank I'm you. so yeah. excited. Thank you. Yeah. Thank so great. You. Thanks, We're guys. Truly grateful for you guys coming on, spending your time. I know it was difficult. Just you guys have crazy schedules, of course. Thank you for guys coming on. It's been the Apple Podcast. Goodbye. Bye bye.